0: Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 15, which is also the whole chapter. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race of the peoples around them and the leaders and the officials had led the way in this unfaithfulness when i heard this i tore my tunic and cloak pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled then everyone who trembled at the words of god of israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles and i sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and the captivity. To pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today but now for a brief moment the lord our god has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in this sanctuary and so our god gives light to our eyes and a relief to our bondage though we are slaves our god has forsaken us in our bondage he has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of persia He has granted us a new life to rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins and he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what have we to say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you have given through your servants the prophets when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people. By their detestable practices they have filled it with their impurities from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this? Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence.
1: Okay, let's uh, just pray, shall we? Uh, Gracious Father, we want to thank you for your fantastic word and uh, for the way that it speaks so clearly to us of your holiness and of our unworthiness and of your redemption. Uh, We pray now that you would be uh, changing us by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The most memorable event from the 1968 Olympic Games was the men's marathon. Uh, it's not remembered because of who came first but rather because of who came last. Uh, John Aquari was a runner from uh, Tanzania and, and about 19 kilometres into the 42 kilometre race he uh, fell badly and he injured himself. Uh, bloodied, he's uh, dislocated knee and uh, with an injured shoulder, the medical staff en route urged him to um, uh, to pack it in, to, to withdraw from the race. Uh, but he didn't. And more than one hour after the winner had actually crossed the line, there was a TV crew that was covering a medal ceremony uh, and they were diverted from covering that medal c- ceremony because of a, a cheer that they heard from a small uh, remnant crowd in the main stadium uh, who were there cheering as a quarry, uh, in absolute agony um, staggered into the main stadium and crossed the line last. Uh, nearly a quarter of the starters had dropped out of the marathon, possibly because of the altitude of uh, Mexico City, and some of them may have started off um, better than Aquari, but they pulled out. It's a story which adds weight to the saying that it's not how you start the race that counts, it's how you finish the race. Now today we're going to be wrapping up our series of uh, sermons, as I mentioned, on the uh, book of Ezra. And uh, Ezra has been—it's been an encouraging story so far, hasn't it? I mean, it's um, uh, so far we've we've seen of how God's people, who are living in exile in Babylon, uh, have been allowed to return home to Judah and to Jerusalem, and. It was not just a marathon journey for them, I mean the the trekker across the desert was the easy part for them. Uh, The marathon was for them, as it is for us, the spiritual journey. Uh, The marathon uh, was the question of how well would they press on uh, in obeying God. And that of course is a question for each one of us in our Christian lives. And so far in uh, Ezra, we've seen that they've made a very good start. For as they uh, trekked across the the desert and they resettled the land and they started to rebuild the temple and the city walls, uh, what was their great passion? What was it that they were passionate about? They were passionate about God. Uh, they had this, uh, this tunnel vision, this single-mindedness uh, to do that which, which was right in God's sight. They were passionate about being holy. Um, for example, um, in uh, chapter 2, uh, some of the returnees claimed to be priests, but they didn't have the paperwork. They couldn't prove it. So were they allowed to serve as priests? No, they were not. Not until they could prove that they were of the priestly uh, line. Um, In chapter 4, there were other people who were living in the land uh, who offered to help in the rebuilding of the temple. Do you recall what happened? Was their offer accepted? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. They were not allowed to do that. And why? Because they were not of Israel. They they worshipped false gods. And so there is this, this tunnel vision, uh, to this determination uh, to honour God, to make no compromises, whatever the cost. It's a great start. And in chapters 7 through to 8, which we're, not, we're actually just going to flip over these chapters, uh, there's a new Persian king uh, on the throne. His name is King Artaxerxes. And uh, King Artaxerxes, we're told in chapter 7, he allows... Ezra, this man Ezra, uh, to also return home uh, to Jerusalem. And in chapter 7, verse 6, uh, Ezra Ezra is described as being a man who is a teacher of the law of Moses. That is, uh, King Artaxerxes, the pagan king of Persia, uh, wants Ezra to return to Judah, to Jerusalem in order to teach God's people God's Word. How about that, eh? You can see the providential hand of God at work uh, in uh, the lives of non-Christian kings. And it's at this point in the book where uh, Ezra's written the book, but it turns from... uh, He's now writing it as the one who... It now reads as in the first person. He now talks about I and me uh, rather than, than they. And it's a great start, but in chapters 9 through to 10, the whole thing now starts to unravel. Uh, The problem is spelt out for us in uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. Let me pick it up at verse 1, uh, where Ezra says, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, quote, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way... In this unfaithfulness so what's what's been going on they're reporting to Ezra that uh, Jewish men the men of Judah uh, have married women who were not Jews and they've they've started families now why is that a problem I mean is, is the Bible racist no the Bible's not racist in fact there are cases in the Old Testament uh, where um, Israelite men married Gentile women and were commended for doing so. For example, Boaz married Ruth. And what race was Ruth? Ruth, Ruth was a S. Um, the issue here is that these were Gentile women who followed the detestable practices of the, what does it say, the Canaanites... Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Now, some of these races no longer existed by the time of Ezra, Uh, and this is a list which we commonly would read uh, when Israel was entering into the land for the first time under Joshua. Uh, The the point is that they were following the detestable practices of these people, just as uh, were practiced. Uh, in the Promised Land in Canaan um, before Israel entered the first time around. Now Ezra doesn't spell it out but one of the detestable practices of the Moabites was to worship the god Chemosh and friends that involved child sacrifice. Now do you think that um, the Jews would ever worship Chemosh? Well the great King Solomon actually set up a high place in Jerusalem for the worship of Chemosh. What was the cause of Solomon's downfall? He married more than one wife, and the women he married did not love and serve the true God. They worshipped other gods. And what did that do for Solomon? It shifted his heart, shifted his heart, away from God. So here, uh, Ezra, uh, in Ezra, these men, uh, they had fallen to the temptation of their desires and they were sharing in the the one flesh union, the intimacy of marriage, and they were developing families with women who did not know and love God. Um, If you uh, care to flip over to the second part of uh, chapter 10, which is where the whole book, just wraps up Uh, there are that's a list of um, very difficult names but uh, this is a list of all of the men who had done this and that's a big list isn't it there's a lot of men who were doing this it's not just a meaningless list because it tells us that this sin had spread and this and it was spreading that is, there was a growing community of men who had disobeyed God in this way. And you know what that's like, don't you? You know, when, when, when everyone else is doing it, then it becomes more acceptable, doesn't it? And when it becomes acceptable, it becomes more normal. And it just grows and grows like yeast spreading through a batch of dough. Okay, so who started this uh, sinful practice? If you check out chapter 9, verse 2, uh, it wasn't the men who were kind of on the fringe of um, uh, of, of the community. Uh, it was actually the leaders. It was the priests and the officials. Uh, you can see why in the book of James we're told that those of us who, not, not many should presume to be teachers or leaders amongst God's people because those... Of us who teach will be judged more strictly, um, because the teaching and the practices of leaders um, becomes an example uh, that others follow. Now, thankfully, in verse one, there were other leaders who came to Ezra, and they reported this to him. They told him what was going on. So, how did Israel was resp- um, how did Ezra respond? <clears throat> well, in verse three, he was appalled. He we're told that he tore his clothes. And he pulled out his hair. That's very dramatic, isn't it? Uh, And then in verse 4, everyone who trembled at the words of God gathered around him. Now that that is a great picture uh, because who is the one whom God esteems? In Isaiah 66, it's uh, uh, the person who uh, is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at the word of God. That's the person whom God esteems. And that's the picture here. Sin is spreading amongst God's people, but there are other people who are trembling at God's word. Uh, Then in uh, chapter 9, verses 5 through to 15, Ezra, having torn his clothes and ripped out his hair, he fell to his knees in prayer. And in this prayer... Ezra basically says to God, we've blown it. And he says that the reason we were sent to, into exile in Babylon in the first place was because of our sinful idolatry, but you, God, you've been so gracious, you've been so merciful to us, you've allowed us to come back, and what have we done? Well, exactly the same thing. There's a neat summary of that in verses 13 through to 14. Where he says, What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we break again your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are because before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Now there is something which is, I, th- I think is quite striking about Ezra's prayer and that is the, the attitude of the people because there is a sense of corporate responsibility um, that is uh, built into this. Uh, For example, in chapter 10, verse 2, uh, there's a a man by the name of Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, and he said this to Ezra. He said, and I quote, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now, when you get to the list of people who've actually done the intermarrying at the second part of chapter 10, uh, Shechaniah's name is not there but yet he is claiming, um, he's admitting some degree of responsibility uh, for this. Uh, why would that be the case? Why would someone accept responsibility um, if they themselves had not sinned? It may well be because <clears throat> as a community that they have tolerated this sin um, and that can happen amongst us, can't it? A friend of mine who's a minister uh, told me that in the church where he was serving uh, there was a, a member of the church who for for decades had been sinning in a particular way. Uh, she had been by the way that she used her tongue, uh, the way that she spoke to people and treated people um, and people just over time got used to it and so, you know that's that's just her. You know, that's who she is. It's okay. Um, until one day there was a visiting preacher at the church, and he he witnessed the way that she spoke to someone, and he approached one of the leaders and said that that's wrong. Um, why are you tolerating this? And eventually, the elders of the church um, addressed the issue um, kindly, appropriately, but clearly with this particular lady and that was a hard thing to do because the nature of the beast is that uh, there's either repentance or uh, there's the opposite and that became a difficulty for them uh, in the church. It was not well received but one member spoke to an elder sometime later about this issue and said, we're all guilty. We are all guilty. Uh, we are all responsible, because for many years we have witnessed her damaging behaviour, and we've just stuck our heads in the sand. We've turned a blind eye so that it became acceptable, and anyone else who saw that would might think that that was acceptable as well and rightful conduct. Um, we've tolerated it. Not one of us has spoken up and done anything. And uh, so there was that sense of the responsibility that we have uh, when we're actually tolerating um, sin amongst us. Now, what action did Ezra and the godly leaders take? Well, in chapter 10, the leaders put a proposal to Ezra and I want us to have a look at this proposal. Uh, Pick it up in in verse 3. This is what they said to Ezra. They said, now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Uh, rise up. This matter is in your hands. Uh, we will support you. So take courage and do it. Now why would they take such dramatic action? For God's people at that time this was repentance. Uh, In order to right the wrong they were to send their wives with their children back to their own families. Um, That's dramatic but the issue is the purity of God's people. Remember, the problem was not that they were foreigners. The problem was that they were introducing false worship into Israel and repentance required that that should be fixed. Uh, In fact, in their situation, it was an appropriate action because in Deuteronomy chapter 13, if a wife enticed her husband to idolatry, then she was to receive the death penalty. This action was to regain the purity of God's people but it also recognises the culpability of the men because as the book ends all of those men are named and they're shamed for a long time for as long as the Bible has existed <laughs> their name is on the, this, this roll of shame. Okay, so what are the implications of this? Let me just uh, make a few comments to draw things together. Um, Firstly, what we see is that things for Israel had not really changed. Um, God had been merciful in bringing them uh, out of exile in Babylon. Uh, They now had this fresh start. They had the opportunity to build a new city. They had an opportunity to build a new temple. But it just didn't take long for sin to get a toehold um, in their community. And that's the same old story. Um, The story of the Old Testament is, uh, in one sense the Old Testament's a a linear story, it's a straight line, it's heading to to Jesus. But there's this circular pattern that keeps on (laughs) repeating itself throughout the Old Testament where um, Israel sins, uh, God uh, judges, Uh, Israel says sorry and repents, Um, God forgives them. And in Israel sins, and God judges, and Israel repents. And God forgives them, and Israel and goes round and round and round. It's just like this, this never-ending cycle. And what it tells us is that something else is needed. And that difference is Jesus. We all need a fresh start. And we can have a fresh start because Jesus has died for our sins. And because of his death and his resurrection, God has poured out his Holy Spirit uh, into our lives. The failure of Israel at the end of Ezra points us to our need for forgiveness, a new heart. It points us to our need for a new covenant in the blood of Jesus That's the first implication, and the most important implication. Secondly, uh, the the passage has this obvious implication for uh, Christians who are single and are considering marriage, doesn't it? Um, And that is that they are to seek after someone who loves Jesus. Um, Christians, let me be as clear as I can about this. Christians should marry Christians. Um, For a Christian to decide to share their life with someone who does not share their love for Jesus, that is firstly disobedient to God's word. And secondly, it can lead to a life of spiritual frustration, of unfruitfulness, and it can lure that person away from God. I've seen it happen many times, even in this church. Now, of course, there are many godly Christians who are married to non-Christians. Um, perhaps because they came to faith in Christ after they were married. Or they were Christian before marriage, but they were just not taught well in their church. Or their spouse may have professed Christ, but has drifted away and no longer does. Uh, so what does God say to those in that situation well we're in a different situation to Israel in the time of Ezra uh, when non-believers were sent packing Uh, that's not the case now in the New Testament in passages like 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12 to 14 uh, Christians who are married to non-Christians are encouraged to win their husband or their wife over uh, not just with their words, but with the the godliness of their life, and with their prayers. Friends, uh, in the Christian life, uh, we can get off the blocks pretty well. We can make a great start, you know with placing our trust in Jesus, you know, when we grasp how gracious God has been to us, in the forgiveness that we've got through Jesus, we can, we can be on fire for the Lord and really uh, really be uh, charging ahead. But over time, as we go through the trials and the temptations of life, we can sometimes kind of lose sight of the, of the finish line. In the sense that the finishing line being our goal to, um, to trust, to love and to serve God um, all our days. Because of Jesus. It's so easy for us to become complacent and to adopt the the values of this world and even to drift away from a wholehearted commitment uh, to serving the Lord. Uh, The clear message of um, this passage is that God wants his people to be holy, uh, not to compromise on sin. Uh, Not to tolerate sin, um, but to expose sin and to repent of it. Very few people remember the name of the man who actually won the 1968 um, Men's Marathon gold medal. I mean you can look it up, Google it, you'll find it somewhere, but we remember the greatest last place getter of all time. And his memorable answer, when he was interviewed, and they asked him the question, why is it that you just didn't pull out of the race? And he said, my country did not send me 10,000 miles to start a race. They sent me here to finish it. Let's finish our race. Let's finish our race strong. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray for ourselves as we're tempted to uh, settle into life in this world and to make compromises and to uh, lose our first love. Uh, we pray that we would always be remembering um, who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross and the heavenly inheritance that awaits all of us. Uh, May we be people who press on towards that goal and uh, may we finish the line strong. In Jesus' name, Amen.